Hello, everyone, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 16 of the 2019-2020 curling season. This week, our guests will include Jean-Sébastien Roy, fresh off his title at the Canadian Mixed Championship, and I also chat with E.J. Harndon of Team Jacobs and Corey Dropkin of the Young Bucks USA team, who won the Tier 1 and Tier 2 events respectively at last weekend's Tour Challenge Grand Slam in Pictou County, Nova Scotia. You will also hear from Sarah McManus of Team Hasselberg, who won the Women's Tier 1 event in Nova Scotia, and you'll also hear from Sarah's teammate, Anna Hasselberg, talking about how much her team is looking forward to defending their European title on home soil next week. And speaking of the Euros, you'll also hear clips of David Murdoch, Alina Petz, Ross Patterson, and Nick Schwaller sharing some of their thoughts on this year's Euros. All that more this week on the From the Hack podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable Full Houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. We'll get to the Canadian Mixed Championship and the Tour Challenge in a few moments, but I wanted to start this episode by congratulating Chang Min Kim of Korea and Han Yu of China for leading their teams to the men's and women's titles at the Pacific Asia Championship in Shenzhen, China. Kim and his team defeated Yuta Matsumura of Japan 11-2 in the final. It was a third Pacific Asia men's title in five years for Korea and a seventh consecutive podium finish. China defeated New Zealand 9-4 to to win the bronze medal and a 14th consecutive podium finish in the men's event. In the women's final, Han Yu led Japan to a 10-3 victory over Team Nakajima of Japan, while Korea defeated Hong Kong 13-2 to win the bronze medal. The victory by China represents their first gold medal in a women's event at the Pacific Asia Championship since 2014 and continued a streak of podium finishes for the Chinese women at the event to 16. The 2020 Canadian Mixed Championship took place last week in the Saguenay region of Quebec, and it was the host team of Jean-Sébastien Roy, Amélie Blais, Dan DeWard, and Brennan Nichols winning the third-ever Mixed Canadian for Quebec, and the first since Jean-Michel Menard led a team to the title back in 2001. Team Quebec defeated New Brunswick 6-5 in the championship final, while the Northwest Territories defeated Manitoba 7-5 to win the bronze medal. Team Quebec will now represent Canada at the 2020 World Mixed Championship. Jean-Sébastien Roy joined me to talk about his team's big win last weekend, which happened in his hometown of Jonquière. Jean-Sébastien, tell me what it felt like to win the Mixed Nationals in your hometown after what had been a terrific week for your team. Uh, it feels so, uh, so amazing. It's, uh, it's a dream come true uh, to win uh, in front of uh, family and friends. And uh, that was an awesome week uh, that we played uh, so well and all turned our side. This was her team's first appearance at the Canadian Mixed Championship. What were your expectations going into the event? Did you believe you had a chance of winning, or were you simply hoping to play well enough to reach a championship pool and then see what happened from there? 
We expect to have a good week. We we expect we knew that we had a good team. We knew I, I knew that I had probably uh, one or the best duo of uh, women's. Uh, I knew that Dan was an experiment uh, at as second, but he is a really good curler. And as a skip, that was my first experience at uh, at the national level. But we knew that we were we will gonna be really close. Um, after that. Uh, you know, a national championship it could turn in uh, in different uh, options after playing some games. So you could play really well and have a bad record, but this this time that just turned well for us. We had a good record, and and after a good week uh, uh, in semi, we 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 played well and uh, we we won all the way. You've represented Quebec at the Briar earlier in your career. Did playing under the pressure that comes with being at a Briar help you deal with the pressure of being the home team at a Canadian mixed? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, that helped me a lot uh, to play uh, in front of uh, ten, twelve thousand people in Saskatoon in 2004. Um, I, I managed that that pressure for sure, and I, I had six months to um, to manage this. I I I knew that I, I would have to play in front of many many friends, many people who who were gonna cheer for us. Uh, I was prepared, and I think the my uh, mental preparation was good and. Uh, that helped me to uh, to make those pressure shots uh, all the week. John Sebastian, I've spoken to many players that have competed and won at uh, Scotty's, the Briar, and other major championships with a long round robin. And what most of them tell me is that they always expect at least one game during the week where nothing goes right, and they always hope that game happens early on in the week. You went through the round robin undefeated last week at the Canadian Mix. When you got to the playoffs, was there a part of you that was thinking, uh-oh, here we are in the playoffs, and we haven't had a bad game yet? That was in my in my mind for sure. Uh, we played so well all week, and we, we just had one one or two game here and there at uh, each position, not in the same time that uh, we didn't play as well as we can. But before the playoffs uh, against uh, Northwest Territories, that was a really close game. We played like average, and in my mind, I just said to my team that that was probably our bad game of the week. Even if we played like average, I, I think we. we you should lose that game. Uh, Jamie had a four-foot draw to win in, in next round. And, uh, you know, as I said, that all turned uh, for us, and we, we, we managed to, to, to win that game. But before the playoff, I just, we, we just talked, and we just said that, okay, uh, there's no more, um, there's no more, that, that's not a normal draw. Um, now that's a semifinal. That's not a, just a regular game. And we just have to play instead of uh, our record, 10-0 and or 8-2. and It doesn't matter. We have to win those two games today. So, uh, so we just prepare for that. In the final, your team got off to a strong start and had a 3-1 lead after four ends. How did getting off to a good start help you and the team relax in a game where falling behind would have put even more pressure on your team playing in a national final at home? We had a good start, uh, like like every game in the week. But I just pick on my first on first end, so I just uh, said, "Oh, well, good timing, first pick of the week, first uh, first end of the final." And but I made the double, and and, and we score one at the first. So after that, shot, I think all the the momentum just changed uh, in in our mind. We were really happy to score one, um, and after that, uh, we we made the the the, the good shots at the right moment, good doubles and I have to manage, uh, um, we were up after four, so after that I think we, j we were just in the same pattern at, at all the week, and we just uh, continue to, to play our rock well. 
And finally, John Sebastian, how did it feel when the final rock came to a stop and you first realized you were a Canadian mixed champion? Before my first rock uh, in the eight, I knew that I just had to peel the guard and I would have uh, an open it uh, to win. So before that shot, that was more pressure, pressure than the last. But I just, uh, I just, um, just went to the act uh, so before my last rock and I just said, I have to to throw just the broom, just the right weight, and just, uh, just, just want to throw a good, good throw. I, you know, we're not supposed to miss a pickout. So in that case, to win the national championship, that, that, that's awesome. I, I, uh, you know, when we dream about, I dream about winning a championship, a national championship when I was younger, and I always had a four-foot to win or pin, not an open hit, a three-up uh, with hammer. But uh, still, it was, uh, I just have some pressure. <laughs> but uh, I knew that we, we would won that game. So I don't typically do rants on this podcast, but here we go. I was watching the coverage of the Tour Challenge Grand Slam last week, and I'm surprised year after year just how little coverage the Tier 2 events gets during that week. I think that Sportsnet does an excellent job of broadcasting the slams overall, but I'm left to wonder why they even bother having a Tier 2 event if they're going to mostly ignore it. Now, I realize that it's not logistically possible to broadcast games from both the Tier 1 and Tier 2 venues, but couldn't they have a remote camera at the Tier 2 venue to provide some highlights of the action in the Tier 2 during Tier 1 play? Also, one of the broadcasters, and I will not name which one, made it sound on Sunday like the teams competing in the Tier 2 event were mostly there to gain experience and learn how to play on arena ice. Well, in the women's Tier 2 event alone, Marianne Arsenault, Suzanne Burt, Andrea Crawford, and Jill Brothers have played in 35 combined Scotties. And Binya Felcher has been to the Worlds five times, winning twice. Now, I'll concede that a few of the younger teams in Pictou County for the Tier 2 may have been there for the experience, but the women I just named have played plenty on arena ice and will not have learned anything while playing in the Tier 2 that they didn't already know. The reason those teams are in Picto for the Tier 2 is to earn the title and win that spot in one of the season's other slams. Not for the experience and to learn how to play on Arena Ice. All that said, aside from the lack of love given the Tier 2 event, it was a great job yet again by the Grand Slam and Sportsnet teams. It was a great week for Team Jacobs who won their 5th career slam title in Picto County, defeating Team Gushu 6-4 in the Tier 1 men's final at the Tour Challenge. The victory was due in large part to a race takeout for 3 by Jacobs in the 7th end that gave his team a 5-4 lead. My next guest this week is EJ Harnden, longtime second for Team Jacobs. When I asked EJ to come on the podcast, I thought we would discuss the Tour Challenge, and in particular the final. But EJ and I got to talking about Team Jacobs, and he provides some interesting insights on how the team is approaching this season, how they approach the week of the Tour Challenge, and how the team seems to have found that spark that had gone missing for large parts of the past several seasons. EJ, this is an important season for Team Jacobs. You're first with Mark Kennedy at third, and you are certainly off to a solid start, winning two events, including the Tour Challenge. How happy are you with the team's progression so far? Yeah, I think all of us, if you, if you asked any one of us, would say that we're extremely happy with uh, with how we're performing this early in the season and, and it being a, a brand-new team. Granted, we had the opportunity to play with Mark in the Canada Cup last year, and it went really well. Um, and we were able to win, but I mean, you, you, all of us are, are, are not that naive to think that we're just going to continue to go out and, and win everything. Um, teams are too good, and there's still a lot for us to learn as a team uh, and uh, about one another and, and some of the things that um, we know we'll have to, you know, slightly maybe adapt to or, or figure out uh, as we become a, a new team and, and create this new identity. Um, so I, I think uh, the start has been. 
probably a little bit above expectations, but at the same time, too, I think all of us um, uh, knew that uh, there was some great potential here and that if we could put it together early in the season, uh, we could get some, some good results, and, and so it's been a, a great start to the season so far. You, Brad, and your brother Ryan have obviously had a lot of success together, and you just added arguably one of the best thirds in the world to your lineup. That said, chemistry can be a tricky thing. Was there a part of you that was a little apprehensive to start the season, not knowing just how well the new lineup might work out, even though your experience with Mark at the Canada Cup last season was a very good one? Yeah, I think going into the season, uh, all of us looked at it the same way, which is, it, it, this was, and we still look at it this way, is that this is a learning season for us. Um, so this is a season where we're going to maybe try a few different things and really figure out who we are as a team um, and how we can get the most out of uh, out of ourselves as individuals and, and most importantly get the most out of this team um, because <clears throat> to your point this is brand new yes Mark's uh, a great player and and uh, we're we're a really solid team on paper um, but how do we you know how are we going to gel uh, from a personality standpoint team dynamics um, just the approach to the game you know philosophies so on and so forth and I think uh, you know all of us uh, with the short time that we spent with Mark playing with him last year and then just knowing him for so many years and competing against him on tour I think going into this season you know, Mark included, as well as the the three of us, all knew that there this could be a great fit, and there was uh, a lot of excitement about the potential um, opportunity and the uh, the overall potential of this team moving forward. But really, keeping ourselves grounded to say there's still a lot that we're going to have to figure out. There's a lot that we're going to have to learn, um, and this first year may be a little bit. Uh, uh, there may be some up and downs and there may be some growing pains, but uh, making sure that those expectations and everything are, are right out in the forefront and very clear going into this year, not ex- expecting that March is going to come in and we're a new team full of energy and we're going to go out and win everything. That was definitely not the uh, the mindset going into this, and it was really kind of a little bit more of the opposite where let's take some time to figure this out. Let's try some new things. Um, we know we're going to have some some great times and we know we're going to have some, some down times as well and, and just you know, keep it very even keeled um, and, um, and realistic uh, and not put too much pressure on ourselves uh, too early um, in this, this new run as a team. It certainly looked like Brad was in the quote-unquote zone in Pictou County at the Tour Challenge. He made a bunch of shots all week, including in the final against Brad Gushu. I'm just wondering if it changes the way you approach him during games when he's in a rhythm like that. It's funny because those are some of the conversations I had with Mark um, going into the season. You know, Mark is, I would would kind of classify him as a student of the game. He's very insightful. He really gets into the small details of, of everything, and so... You know, he had multiple conversations with Brad and myself and Ryan about many different things and things to look out for and, and wanting to learn as much as he could about each one of us going into the season. And that was one of the things I said to Mark. I said, you, you know, Brad is always going to curl really well, but there's times where you can just tell that he's in a, in a different zone. And, and when you see that, you just got to basically step aside and let him go <laughs> because he's, He's going to make everything, um, and uh, we see that quite a bit, luckily, uh, with Brad, just because he's that great of a player. Um, but I, we, to your point, we did, I did definitely see a little bit of that um, in Picto, especially in the final game, uh, where he's extremely decisive, um, not scared, 
to make or, or miss a shot and, and really just putting everything on the line um, and, and just really going for it. And when you see that in Brad, it's, uh, you know, playing with him for so long now, it's, it's easy to see. Uh, it's pretty exciting to see. And, and uh, when you do see it, you just you step aside and let him go because 99.9% uh, .9 of the time um, it's going to result in some uh, pretty great things. One of the knocks on your team, if I can put it that way, is that there's been times where there seems to be some indecision on certain shots. At the Tour Challenge, it seemed like Brad was being very decisive on most shots, especially in the seventh end of the final in Picto County when he decided to go for three, when a deuce would have tied the game but essentially also have given Team Gushu control of the scoreboard. That decision was very reminiscent of the Team Jacobs of 2013 and 2014 when he had so much success winning both a Briar and Olympic gold. Is being more decisive and aggressive something you guys talked about in the offseason or has it simply developed as the season has gone along in the three or four events you've played so far? Uh, I, I would say that was something that we've been working on for the last couple of years and, and kind of getting that little bit of an edge back. Um, we did a lot of work with with Adam Kingsbury over the last year and a bit and, and taking a lot of that learning into this year um, and wanting to do exactly what you just said is, is leaving it all out there and not feeling like we're playing tentative or scared and, and if we have an opportunity because the competition is so strong, you, you have to take it. And, and, and sometimes that's going to result in, in uh, the game going the other way. But that's okay because at least we, we went for it. Uh, I think the biggest thing going into the this last slam uh, tour challenge versus uh, the Masters and, and our loss against Dunstone, and we had a lot of conversation about that game after it happened, was we just felt like we let the game kind of go on too long and played a little bit too tentative and, and didn't take enough kind of chances um, to get ourselves in a better position to, to win um, and played a little bit more defensively, a little bit more tentatively and, and didn't just kind of quote-unquote go for it. And that was one thing that we talked about going into this slam was we didn't want to feel, ever step off the ice feeling like that again, where we felt like, the game, the other team was kind of dictating the the pace of the game or the way that the game was was unfolding, um, and that we weren't taking opportunities to kind of turn it back in our favor um, and give ourselves a, a great chance to win. And I think that's what you saw you know, multiple times throughout this this past week, but definitely in the final. I know talking to Brad after, I mean, it, it where Brad Gushu's rock ended up, it was already in his mind, Brad. Uh, Jacobs in terms of what he was playing. To your point, we knew that more than likely if we get a deuce, we're going into the final end and Jeff's going to make two ticks and the game's going to be over um, and it's going to be extremely hard to steal. So it was literally going for the the, the opportunity to win in, in seven and giving ourselves that lead. Not, not to say that it was going to be safe, but it was definitely increasing our, our chances and our probability of, of, of winning. And, and that's exactly the, what we did. Um, you know, that was a conversation that Mark and Brad had before Brad Gushu even threw was to say if he makes this freeze and puts it in a spot where we have the opportunity to play this run back for three, then that's what we're playing. Uh, and as you saw, there was no hesitation. Um, once uh, Brad Gushu's rock came to rest, the room was down, and me and Ryan looked at each other and were like, well, I guess we're going for it. And, and, and again, one of those times where you just, uh, you know that, Brad has it in his mind, and you just kind of you, you let him go. You, if, if you want some information, you give it to him. But uh, other than that, let him be. And uh, like I said, 99.9% .9 of the time, he's going to make that shot. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty fun to watch. 
As a slam team, you end up playing a bunch of the same teams event after event, year after year. Has it gotten to the point where it's difficult to surprise the other teams with strategic moves? And in other words, has it gotten to a point where it basically comes down to who executes better on any given day because the other teams know each other so well that it's difficult to surprise anyone strategically? I mean, I, I do think it comes down to who's who's just going to execute better, but um, regardless of the strategy that you play. But I, I also believe that there needs to be a little bit of an element of surprise and, and unpredictability in terms of how you were playing the game from a strategic standpoint. Um, and I think you're starting to see a little bit more of that. Uh, I, think you, I think you saw more of it last year um, than in previous years, and I think you're seeing even more uh, this year. That's something that I know for our team that we've been having lots of conversation about is, okay, you know, the standard play is this, and the standard and set up as this, but, you know, how can we think about potentially different ways to play um, different ends, de- depending on where the, the play is going to, whether it's going to the wings, or do we want to take it to the wings, do we want to take it to the center, and then it also depends on who we're playing, um, and some of the kind of scouting reports that we have on that team in terms of are they slow starters, are they quick, you know, do they come out quick right out of the gates, um, are they a little bit of a stronger hitting team, and then it's just, you know, if you're playing a Let's say take Brad Gusha for example. Is, you know some of the things that we may think about is how, do we want to play any ends a little bit differently depending on what end it is just to to, to change it up a little bit um, and, and hopefully uh, uh, you know not every single game is so so templated that to your point that every single team knows what they're going to get from us and and I think that goes for other teams as well. So I do believe you're starting to see uh, many teams look at the game differently in terms of. And, uh, and and how they want those ends to set up and depending on who they're playing and so on and so forth. So I, I think there's a balance there. I think too many teams are relying on pure analytics and forgetting about the fact that you still need to go out there and execute those those analytics uh, from a shot-making perspective. Uh, so I think for our team, we're, we're trying to kind of strike a little bit of a balance where we do want to always have that little bit of element of unpredictability and, and uh, definitely... Um, take different approaches and different styles to different ice surfaces and different teams and different events. And uh, that's something that we, we've also been focusing in on over the last uh, about year and a half or so. And finally, EJ, uh, at the Slam in North Bay a few weeks ago, I bumped into Rick Lang, who was telling me that he is doing some coaching with your team this season. Will uh, Rick be working with you throughout the season, and what role is he expected to play from a coaching perspective? That, that's part of this whole this whole first year is trying to figure out exactly who we are as a team and what we need to to get us to where we want to be, which is you know at the at the top of the game and obviously peaking definitely for the Olympic trials, um, but ho- hopefully also getting a few Canadian championships or a Canadian championship between now and then. And um, so that was part of the conversation early in the season was kind of trying to figure out uh, what uh, support pieces that were required and. Um, we, Adam Kingsbury and uh, Arthur Pellini, who are two individuals that we've utilized from a sports psychology standpoint, have helped us immensely over the last couple of years and really, I think, got us to a great point um, uh, from that perspective in, in terms of our, our mental toughness, uh, communication, uh, team dynamics, so on and so forth, something that we're still always trying to, to work on. But one of the things that we wanted to focus a little bit more on this year were, was um, mechanics. Uh, and then also what I just talked about previously in terms of how we're approaching the game, taking a little bit more of a strategic mindset in terms of how we're going to play uh, the game, depending on ice surface, depending on who we're playing, um, depending on uh, how the you know what position we're in from um, a standings perspective, so on and so forth. They're all different 
sorts of different factors. And, and Rick was someone that uh, we we seek some advice from uh, over the last number of years and someone that we all have a, a great amount of respect for in terms of what he's done not only in Curling but also in Northern Ontario. And so um, Rick has uh, graciously agreed to help us out throughout the season uh, and really focusing in on, on those sorts of things. So one, uh, technical ex- excellence. Um, so some of the you know things that we're working on in practice in terms of how we're throwing the rock, the consistency of our, of our deliveries, so on and so forth, and, and then assisting on um, some of the other you know things from I say like a game management, rock management perspective. So that's really his focus this year with our team. Um, obviously, bringing in a ton of insight and experience that goes along with those two things. But those are are, are the kind of two main items that Rick's helping us out with this year, and uh, we're grateful. To, uh, to have him as part of our team uh, this season. Arnold Asham's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Asham Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Asham's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for Broom's apparel and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. The team that won the Men's Tier 2 event at the Tour Challenger might be unknown to some in the curling community, but they have certainly played well in the last year and a half uh, on the World Curling Tour, making six finals. But they had yet to win their first title when they arrived in Pictou County. Well, Corey Dropkin and his team, known as the Young Bucks USA, certainly picked the right time to win their first event, defeating Tanner Horgan 5-4 in a Tier 2 final and earning a spot in this season's Canadian Open. Corey Dropkin joined from the hack to discuss his team's big win in Pictou County. Corey, your team had played well the last season and a half, reaching a handful of finals on the World Curling Tour, but you had yet to have a breakthrough win until the Tour Challenge Tier 2 event in Pictou County. How did it feel to get that monkey off your back and win a title, and an important one of that? Yeah, just like you said, it, it feels really good. We, uh, you know, we've had quite a few events in which we've reached the final and just haven't been able to, you know, secure the secure the win in the title game, and um, to finally be able to do that, especially in the the situation being in the tier two event and um you know being in front of a the, you know the big crowd in Pictou county was uh it was a surreal experience and uh, i was just we were just so happy to be able to um you know show up and and uh and close out that game and and uh and it was a fun battle for for everyone and um yeah it was a great experience you're still a relatively young team, and I was wondering what your mindset was entering the Tier 2. Were you clearly focused on winning the event, especially since you had some success in the Tier 2 last season, or did you view it more as an opportunity to measure yourselves against teams of a similar rank and look to qualify for the playoffs where anything can happen? Uh, yeah, I think going into going into the week, we we, uh, we felt like we just wanted to hit our groove, and, and, and we knew we could go deep, uh, and as long as we... We we found that groove and found that flow. We'd we'd be able to. And there's so many good teams there um, that uh, that you know it was going to be it was going to be challenging no matter what. Um, but we felt comfortable that as long as we as long as we hit our stride well, that we'd we'd have a good chance. And I think we felt as though we had a little bit of uh, unfinished business, almost so to speak, uh, from last year, where we we kind of gave away the the semifinal game. 
a little bit on uh, on I take a little bit of responsibility for that one too. And so I, I think we went into the week with uh, you know really the the ter- determination of of wanting to go uh, as deep as we can, but really just trying to take it one step at a time, one game at a time. And um, it was a little bit of a of an emotional roller coaster of a week. We had a, we struggled a little bit early, um, but kind of just found uh, found our stride on the, at the right game at the right time and, and, and were able to figure it out just in time. So, Corey, you spend the whole week getting used to the ice conditions in one venue, and then for arguably one of the bigger games of your season, the final of the Tier 2 event at the Tour Challenge, they move you to the main arena where, terrific, you get to play in the front of a larger crowd, but you're also playing on ice that you are unfamiliar with. Now, I realize that the ice makers attempt to make the ice consistent in both arenas, but there's always going to be some small differences. How did you and your team go about adjusting to the new ice conditions and find your groove in front of a larger crowd in such an important game for the team? Uh, I think it was a little bit of a challenge. I, I think uh, you know we kind of knew we were gonna see see something a little bit different. Um, you know, most of us, if not all of us, were used to playing in front of crowds, and and we we really enjoy and embrace that sort of um, the moment and that, that experience. And and so really to prepare for it, we were just um, going in with kind of a, a clear mindset and, and knowing that, you know, we, we might experience some differences in the ice and, and have challenges here and there, but really just trying to be focused on picking up on, on those subtle differences as, as soon as possible um, throughout the game. And, uh, and it was nice that they were able to give us uh, a 20-minute practice beforehand. So um, really just match our rocks and make sure we're comfortable with our sets. Um, and, and I actually had the opportunity beforehand the night before to um, you know, talk to uh, talk to Glenn Howard actually, and, and kind of ask him, pick his mind a little bit to see, uh, you know, what 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 he thought might be the biggest uh, little little adjustments we might need to make going into going into that um, that that arena with the crowd and, and everything, and so that that really helped. Your team was behind 3-1 to one at the halfway mark of the Tier 2 final, and you seemed to get things rolling early in the second half with a deuce in the fifth. What did you guys talk about between the fourth and fifth ends? Did you decide to change anything strategically, or did you stick to your guns, knowing that at some point you would get opportunities, and then you'd simply have to capitalize on those opportunities? I, I think the big thing was just staying patient and, and really just trying to put as much pressure on, on, on uh, you know Tanner and those guys. And those guys are you know, such a great team, and... Um, and so you don't get you don't get many breaks against against them, and so really just trying to capitalize on on any you know single half shot or or, or miss that that we're able to that we're able to get and pick up on them, and um, and and you know getting that fourth and and four I think was actually huge. Uh, we were in a little bit of trouble, and we were able to escape with just giving up a single. And I think uh, I think going into the second half, being down two with and and being able to pick up. Uh, that juice and kind of get things rolling really, really uh, kind of build our momentum a bit going into the, the next few ends and, and, and really just continue to apply, apply some pressure and just, just, make, just make shots, be patient, and, and keep breathing out there, to be honest. And finally, Corey, winning the Tier 2 event at the Tour Challenge also earns you a spot in another slam. This season, that's the Canadian Open in Yorkton in January. Now, your team has had success against some of the top-ranked teams in the world, but in the slam, you're facing nothing but the top-ranked teams. What do you guys need to work on and improve between now and January so that you are in a position to make a run at the playoffs and potentially win at the Canadian Open? Yeah, this is our, I mean, this is our, this has been our goal for, you know, uh, as soon as we, as soon as we, came together as a team we wanted to 
um, you know, really break into that, that those tier one events and those, those slam events. And so this is just such a great opportunity for us. Um, and it's really kind of what we've been striving for. We're going to, well, I mean, we're going to need to make sure we practice up and, and, you know, that we're nice and sharp going into, going to that slam in Yorkton. And, um, as I said, it's going to be such a great opportunity. It's, uh, we're not going to get many mistakes out there. That's for sure. So we're just going to make sure we can, you know, make as much as we can with every shot. Um, and, uh, you know, just focus on, focus on our game and, um, you know, basically performing like we know we can. I think we have the ability. It's just really building on the consistency and, and making the right shot to the right moment and, and, uh, and yeah, we're not going to get many misses out there. So it's going to be a fun experience and, uh, and we're, we're all looking forward to it. The women's tier two event at the Tour Challenge came down to a battle between Minji Kim of Korea and Justin Murphy of Ontario. Murphy and her team had played well all week but could not keep it going in the tier two final. They were down nine nothing at the halfway point of the final and then shook hands after scoring two points in the fifth end. The Koreans will now play in the Canadian Open later this season. Meanwhile, the Women's Tier 1 event at the Tour Challenge came down to a battle between Team Anderson of Manitoba and Team Hasselberg of Sweden, a rematch of the 2019 Players' Championship Final, which was won by Team Anderson. The Swedes took control when they scored three points in the third end for a 4-2 lead and held on from there to defeat Team Anderson by a score of 8-5 for their third career slam title. Sarah McManus, the third for Team Hasselberg, joined from the hack as she was running to the airport to discuss her team's victory in Pictou County. Sarah, your team took control of the Tour Challenge Final when you scored three points in the third end to take a 4-2 lead. Now, I realize that establishing control is always important in games, but how critical was it when you were playing against a Team Anderson that is a top-ranked team in the world, a team that has played well all season, and a team that had defeated you in your last slam final at the Players' Championship last spring? Well, like, obviously, it's really nice for the confidence to just, like, start off like that, and uh, it really keeps us going and keeps the momentum, so, like, it feels really nice, and then you can just have as I said, like really good confidence throughout the game. So, yeah, that was uh, that was the key, absolutely. Your team is now headed back to Sweden where you will attempt to defend your European title in front of a supportive home crowd. Is it safe to say that your team will be going into the Europeans with a lot of confidence after the form you showed this week at the Tour Challenge? Absolutely, like so much. It's, uh, it's nice to know that we have a really good like curling in, in our bodies and as you say, like it gives us a really good confidence and it's nice and we had a lot of fun out there so we just like bringing a lot of good stuff into the Europeans, so that's nice. And finally, Sarah, your team has now won three slams, two of them in Nova Scotia. Is there a part of you that would like the Grand Slam to host more events in that part of the country from now on? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's uh, it's a key. Yeah, we'll see in the future. But, it's, uh, yeah, like we really love it here, and uh, it's been great. The fans have been great. The crowd has been awesome. Like, we, we really love it here. Speaking of the European Championship, uh, From the Hack also spoke with Anna Hasselberg recently about defending their European title at home in Sweden. Anna, your team recently won a qualification event, meaning that you will now represent Sweden at the Euros, uh, where you are the reigning champions. How excited is your team about the opportunity of playing an important event like the Euros in front of a Swedish audience? Yeah, first of all, it was a big thing for us to qualify in this new format of the Best Out of Seven. And we played such a good week and won the four straight. So we're really excited to go back and play in our home country. That is a first and always a dream to represent Sweden in Sweden. So really excited to be back. And there's so many great European teams. Europeans is such a strong field right now. And Anna, for those in our audience who may not be familiar with the European Championships, can you share how important that event actually is for European teams such as yours? 
Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, in Europe, uh, the Europeans is uh, leveled with the world. So it's uh, it's uh, it's the world and it's the Europeans. It's those two big championships and of course the Olympics. So uh, the importance uh, feels as much as a world for us. As mentioned, the European Championships are important to all the teams that will be representing their countries. Here's how three-time European champion David Murdoch of Scotland puts it. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal for all the European teams. Uh, obviously. Um, we need qualification. You have to qualify your country to get to the World Championship. So, you know that's always uh, that's always at the back of your mind in some ways. Uh, you know, it's never a it's never an easy week. You know, we all know the the teams are tough and they come to the championship and everyone wants to be at the world. So it makes it a tough week, a challenging week, uh, and that's uh, that's obviously the priority to do that. Uh, and secondary to that, you obviously want to you want to have a medal. You want to show your form. You want to see how you're running in, in that mid part of the season. And uh, in, in Europe just now, we've got so many great teams. Uh, it's uh, it's a tough challenge. Bruce Mallard of Scotland won the men's event at the Euros last season, but his team was defeated in the Scottish qualifier by Ross Patterson, who told from the hack just how exciting it is for his team to qualify for the Euros and try to retain the title won last season by Team Mallard. Uh, yeah, it was great for our team. Um, when we sat down at the start of the year, that was... Our first goal was to win that playoff, so it was nice to to tick that one off the list. You know, this is our our first international um, event as a team, so we're, we're excited to be there, and we know that um, we're, we're expectations are high when we go there, and we'd be trying our best to, to come home with a good medal. In the women's event, Team Tiranzoni, the reigning world champions, will attempt to put a stop to a four-year drought for Switzerland. A Swiss team has not won the women's event at the Euro since Binja Felcher did it in 2014. In fact, since the turn of the century, Swiss women have won five world championships, but only two European championships. From the hat caught up with Alina Petz, who throws four stones for Team Tiranzoni, and who shares how much the team is looking forward to playing in the Euros and hopefully adding a first European title to their list of accomplishments in only their second season together as a team. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, it's, it's always fun to play the Europeans. It's always fun to represent Switzerland at a big event like that. And it's always a big fight between European teams. I mean, we played Sweden in the final last year uh, twice at the Europeans and the World. So, yeah, it's, it's, it will be a big, a big battle as well this year. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. And there are a lot of other good teams as well, like Scotland, Germany or, yeah. It's going to be fun. The 2019 European Championships are taking place in Helsingborg, Sweden from November 15th to the 23rd. And that does it for this episode of the From the Hack podcast. Join us next time as we preview the 2019 Canada Cup. I'm Frank Rock and this is From the Hack.